You know, I don't think that there's anything more American than retirement. If you think about really what the American dream is and the culmination of the American dream and kind of the aim of the American dream, the American dream is to kind of grow as uh, grow your wealth as quickly as you can, can obtain as many things as you can, have, advance up the career ladder as quickly as you can, so that ultimately you can retire as early as you can. And you can live on kind of like an extended vacation for kind of the last several decades of your life and be able to not, not worry about, we call that the living the dream, right? call that living the dream. But you know, as is often true, many things are much more American than they are biblical. And sometimes we have to stop thinking like an American and begin thinking like a Christian. And so I ask us this morning, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about our lives and work and how all of those things intersect and how all of those things come together? What does the Bible say about leisure versus labor? Today we're going to kind of bring our God-fearing family series to a close by looking at a God-fearing work ethic, looking at God-fearing work and what the Proverbs have to say about work. They actually have quite a bit to say. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24. We're going to begin together today in verses 27. We're going to skip verses 28 and 29 because they cover a different subject. And then we're going to go begin again in verses 30 through 34. So stand with me as we read God's word together. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 27, God's word says, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Skip down with me to verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to verse 27, those first two verses are kind of parallel verses. Remember we talked about how the Psalms, uh, how the Proverbs often write in, in parallelism, right? So those first, two ver- those first two sentences of verse 27 are saying the same thing and they're saying it twice. Let's read it again together. Prepare your work outside and get everything ready for yourself in the field. So it's painting for us the picture of a man who is starting out. It's saying, get prepared, prepare yourself, establish your work, establish your life. So it's very likely that what we're talking to here is a a wise man, an older man, Solomon, talking to his son, talking to a younger man, beginning out, beginning his life and establishing his life and kind of getting it going. 
Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, it has a lot of different names for the wise and a lot of different names for the fool. And the wise in this particular passage takes on a very specific shape. You see, he talks a lot about the field. It talks about, it talks about uh, preparing your work outside, getting yourself everything in the field, right? So what's brought into view here is a man that's going to have a vineyard, a man that's going to have uh, some kind of crop that he's going to have to plow the field and cultivate the field and grow. He's going to have to go and get the field ready, prepare the field, get, get rid of all the trees that might be in the way, make sure the soil is good, make sure the soil is plowed and things are taken care of. They're living in an agrarian society. And so you can imagine that what we're talking about here is a man that's going to work hard. And I bring into your mind that there's no tractors, all right? Solomon's boy is not jumping on a John Deere and going out to plow the field. Solomon's boy is not getting on a cotton baler and rolling through and watching all the cotton fall out like magic. No, he's going to do it all by hand. There's no plumbed irrigation. And I also remind you, this is in the Middle East, okay? Not really known for their, their rainforest-like qualities over there in the Middle East. So this is a laborious job. This is day in, day out, from can to can, baking in the sun, pouring sweat, going from daylight to dark, trying to get all of these things ready, preparing the fields, plowing the fields, watering the fields, reaping the crop. So the diligent man that we're being shown here, the wise man that we're being shown here, is a man who works hard. It's a man who's not afraid to get his hands dirty. A man that's not afraid to roll up his sleeves and get after it a little bit, if you know what I'm talking about. Well, I want you to notice too here the very possessive language, right? Do you notice that? Prepare your work outside, getting ready everything for yourself in the field. See, Solomon has very specific thing in, in view here. Remember the Proverbs are all about recognizing the universal laws of the world. The way that God kind of built the universe, the way God kind of organized all of civilization, how it all kind of fits together, that God built systems, God implemented those systems into the world, and that those systems are now learnable by us, that we can obtain that knowledge, live them out, and build up a wise life, a thriving life, a healthy life. So here's what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying here, essentially, work hard so that you can build up your life in an honorable way. Work hard, work diligently, work prudently, so that you can build your life in such a way that is honorable and respectable and honest. Build up your life as a man, or a man of good character, of wise living, of integrity. Don't look for shortcuts. Don't, don't look for the easy button. Do it the right way. Do it the right way from the beginning. Do it the wise way from the beginning. Understand the way God has built all of this and fit all of this together is aiming toward a certain end. And be diligent about pursuing that end with your life. We might summarize it like this. Son, your life isn't just going to happen. Son, your food is not just going to show up on your dinner plate. Son, your bank account is not just going to fill with money. 
Son, your fields aren't going to plow themselves. You've got to go. You've got to work. You've got to do it. You've got to get after it yourself. And I tell us the same thing this morning. Your life is not just going to happen. Your life is not just going to be the way it's supposed to be. Your life is not just going to be built in a certain direction just because you want it to be. Just because you intend for it to be. You know what they say about well intentions, right? Good intentions. Good intentions are meaningless if they don't ever do anything. Good intentions are powerless. No, a wise man, a wise man understands that he must do the work. A wise man understands that he must put in the time. A wise man, a diligent man, doesn't try to find a shortcut to get to the top quickly. Instead, he is comfortable about building his life honestly and honorably, slowly, as the Lord has built it to be. Think about who you want to be ten years from now. Think about who you want to be ten years from now. For some of you, you'll be out of high school and you'll be in college, you'll be at a job, you'll be in a career, you'll be married by then. How about that? That kind of freaks you out, huh? That freaks out mom and dad a lot more. Some of you, you have young children that will be teenagers. Some of you have children that are in elementary school that are preparing to graduate. Some of you have kids in your house that, praise God, might actually be out of your house, right? Some of you hope to have grandkids in the next 10 years. But what do you want to look, your life to look like then? What kind of godliness do you want to be true of you then? What kind of mom, what kind of dad do you want to be 10 years from now? What kind of grandparent do you want to be 10 years from now? What kind of life do you want 10 years from now? It's not just going to happen. What you do today will matter 10 years from now. That's what the wise man understands. The fool believes that they can just intend for the right things to happen, want the right things to happen, and the right things magically happen. The wise person understands that if I want to be husband A, I'm going to have to take steps X, Y, and Z. That if I want a good marriage 10 years from now, I've got to take the right steps today, whether it's in my dating life or whether it's in my young and fledgling marriage now. That if I want to be a good mom or dad 10 years from now, I better be sowing wisdom in my life today. That if I want to be in a financial position 10 years from now where I'm not buried in debt and I'm able to be generous and go on mission and, and support missionaries and do all kinds of gospel-centered work and generous work and to know that joy, then I better avoid debt today and save slowly and prudently. What you do today will matter 10 years from now. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. It's slow. It's gradual. It's tedious. But the systems of God have built it so. The way God has designed the world to be built is it's not about windfalls. It's about slow, diligent, honorable work. Now, I want you to understand the reason this is so is because it is the design of God. I think in our minds, when we think about work, we tend to think about, like, necessary evil, right? And they, all right, I got to get up and give my eight to the man and come back home and get over it, right? Like, I, I got to get up, 
go to work, do my thing, bow down to my boss, do whatever it is I do, get that finally behind me, and then go about my life and enjoy as much leisure as I can in the meantime. So in other words, when we think about work, we think about it almost as like it's the result of sin. I think most of us, when we think about work, we think about it being uh, the result of brokenness in the world, right? Like, like if the world was all as it should be, there would be no work. We'd just chill at the golf course and at the beach and have a merry time, right? Now, that sounds good. That sounds fun. And I bet you can see this because of your view of heaven. I believe most people think there's not going to be any work in heaven. Most people believe that in heaven we're all just, just think about how, how Hollywood does this, man. We're all floating around in the clouds, playing harps. Like, look, you're going to be cool with that for about 15 minutes and you're going to be over it. Heaven's not built that way. Heaven's not built that way. Think about when work came into picture in the Bible. Remember where sin comes in, right? Sin comes in in Genesis chapter 3 when they eat the the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so at that point, sin comes in. The world is broken. All of the, uh, we, we know that work at that point, there's going to be thorns and thistles in the ground. There's going to be sweat from the brow, right? But work came in before that. Work came in in Genesis 1 and 2. Word came in in Genesis 1 when it says that you were made in my image. Guess who our God is? Our God is a working God. Our God is a God with a six-day work week. Word came in in chapter 1 when it said that I'm going to place you in dominion over the earth. What is that? That's responsibility. That's work. This is when everything is still good. There is no brokenness. Word comes in in Genesis chapter 2 when God brings all of the animals before Adam and he names every single one of them. That's work. Word comes in in chapter 2 verse 15 when it says, and you will work the ground. Just says it right there out loud. Like, it's, like, it's almost like God's like, all right, maybe you, maybe you won't get the, the big picture here. Maybe you can't really understand kind of underst- underlying truth, underlying proof. Let me just say it out loud. You got to work the ground, man. You got to work the ground. All of this existed according to the perfect design of God before there was any sin in the world. You were built for work. You were built to find purpose in work and joy in work and satisfaction in work. God built work for the provision of his image bearers and at the same time for the purpose and significance of his image bearers. He built us so that we might work and Proverbs assumes that we have a job to do. Proverbs assumes that there is work laid out before us that we must accomplish with our lives. See, this is another one of those intersections where the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world collide. Because the wisdom of the world says, get out of work as quickly as you can. Live your life doing as little work as you can possibly get by with. Go and chill at the beach as much and as long as you can possibly go and chill at the beach. Go golfing as often as you can go golfing. Play, play volleyball and badminton as often as you can play volleyball and badminton. Sit around, umbrella drink, chilling on a float. Like that's the wisdom of the world, right? Don't give your time to the man. But the wisdom of God is the opposite. 
The wisdom of God says that purpose and significance and meaning and yes, joy is found in our work. That is that, that vacations cannot offer you what work can. And, and let me just clarify terms here. I'm not talking about having to go to a job every day to do work. I believe that retirement is okay as long as you retire to do something. A stay-at-home mom is not, I, I, that is certainly in view. Proverbs 31 clarif- classifies that as hard work, diligent, honorable work. So I'm talking about work, I'm talking about in the big picture work, right? But it's saying vacations can't hold a candle to the joy that work can bring into your life. Leisure cannot offer you what labor can. If you think about it in your life, the th- you know this to be true because the things that you are most proud of, the things that bring you the most joy in your life are those things that you had to work the hardest for. Think about your children, those of you that have them. Especially those of you that have them now, now grown. Do you have a few gray hairs? Sure. A couple bald spots, maybe. Dents in your walls, yeah. You've painted over crayon before, Right? You, you've, you've stayed awake at night before. And yet when somebody asks me, and they, says, they say, tell me about yourself. What's the first thing that you say? I got two kids. I got, I got one, he's married, he's got, a, he's got a little one on the way, already got one here, and they are just the joy of my life, right? The other is, is, is almost finished with college, and there's somebody serious in, in her life, and uh, we expect a wedding to be soon. That's the first thing that you say, isn't it? Now, have you ever worked any harder for anything in your life than raising your children? And yet that was a source of joy, isn't it? See, work is not just a means to an end. Work is an end in and of itself. An end through which God brings us joy and purpose and satisfaction. Rest is good. Rest is not forbidden. I'm taking a vacation a week after next. This is going to be guilt-free, y'all. I'm going to chill on the beach. That's not what I'm saying. Now rest is good, but too much of it will kill your soul. There's a reason that God gave us a six-day work week and one day of rest. It's not a curious thing why so many men retire only to find themselves completely deteriorated within a year. All of their standard of living completely eroded. All of their health completely eroded a year from now. Could it be that they have broken free from the design of God and laid up in such a way that they lost the meaning and the purpose and the joy and the significance in their life so that it is all just wasted away? No. We must work because we were built work. Anytime you detach yourself from the design of God, you will lose your purpose, you will lose your significance, you will lose any joy that you have in your life. Put to death that American ideal in you that says, I need to do as little work as possible if I'm going to find any happiness in this life. Put it to death. I think the most important phrase though, in verse 27, may be after that. After that, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Now, I want to add some, some clarification here. All right? when, he's, when he's using the word house, he has in view a, a, a building, a house. All right? So in, in biblical times, in, in Israel, it would have been 
uh, acceptable to live in a tent. That would have been perfectly reasonable. It would have been perfectly fine. You could live your whole life in a tent, and you were not seen as being weird. You were not seen as being distant. But it was desirable to have a house. It was acceptable to have a tent, but it was desirable to have a house, to live in, in, in something that is more established, more firm, something that you could, in fact, hand down to the generation that was to come after you. But it's, that's not all that's in view. When it's talking about a house, it's talking about a household. It's talking about a wife. It's talking about children. It's talking about even getting beyond the, the needs of life and even some of the wants of life. And so here's, here's what it's saying. It's saying that in life, according to the design of God, that your life is to take a certain shape. There's a certain shape to life. There's a certain trajectory to life. That you don't, you don't start out with, with all the, the extras, all the bells and whistles, all of the wealth. You don't start out with stacked up bank accounts. Like you don't start out that way. Now, again, this is Proverbs. We know there are exceptions, but that is not the norm. That is not the expectation of the book of Proverbs. No, instead, you start out with nothing, and you have to build your life. So here's what's in view. What's in view is that this man will go out, and this young man will establish his field. He will establish for himself a foundation on which he's going to build the rest of his life. And once his fields are established, once his, his means of provision are there, and they are steady, and they are reliable, then he is free to go out, and he is to build up his house, and he is free at that point to go and to find a wife, and to have children, and to build a family, and to build himself a house, and to even obtain some of the, the good gifts of the fathers that are maybe a step beyond necessity. There's a shape to your life. In other words, there's a sense in which you have to go and pay your dues. You have to pay your dues. We live in a society now that nobody wants to pay their dues. Nobody wants to start at the bottom rung. Everybody wants to be the manager. Nobody wants to be the factory worker. Everybody wants to be the leader. Nobody wants to be the follower. They have no opportunity to pay their dues and learn the ropes and, and build their life up. Every young couple wants what their parents have after 50 years of marriage. But Solomon is telling his son, if you're going to be wise, if you're going to be honorable, if you're going to operate according to the design of God, you must be willing to pay your dues. And young men and young women and those establishing your life, I tell you the same thing. Be willing to pay your dues. You will find no greater advocate. I'm going to make some parents uncomfortable and then hopefully relieve that pressure just a little bit, all right? You will find no greater advocate for young marriage than me. I think by God's grace, if he opens the door... I think it is ideal for a couple to be married young. My wife and I were married when we were 21. And it, we grew together. We've matured together. Haven't matured quite as much as I'd like to, but I'm still working on it. But I'm convinced that it is an honorable and good model. That we started our life young. We've had our children young. Continuing to have our children. And who knows when that's going to end. And so uh, you just got to work and all that out. But I think there's advantages of beginning young. But. But. Only when you've prepared your field. Only when you've prepared your field. Don't wait till 30 to prepare your field. That's not honorable according to the word of God. That's not honorable. There is no such thing as adolescence in the Bible. Did you know that? 
Teenagers were not even a thing then. 13 years old, you're a man, there's the field, go after it, son. But I do not think it is honorable. So, so let, me, let me clarify what I'm saying. I think it is honorable to marry young. I do not think it is honorable to marry young and live on mom and dad's dime. That is not honorable. It is not honorable that mom and dad's buying you groceries if you're uh, your own man and you're your own couple. That's not honorable. Look, if they want to chip in every now and then and bless you, God bless mom and dad. But that should not be your expectation. Son, pay your dues. Do the work. Paying your dues brings God glory in your life. I remind you that Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, built coffee tables. He walked on water. He built a church that's rocking 2,000 years later. And for the first 30 years of his life was building coffee tables. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, greatness is humbling yourself. In, great, in the kingdom of God, greatness is plowing in the field under the sweltering heat, realizing the harvest can't come if the field's not plowed. Greatness in the kingdom of God is patience and submission. Submitting as a factory worker to your supervisor that you don't even like very much. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. Doing the, the menial task around your house is greatness in the kingdom of God. So pay your dues. Uh, observe the shape of life which God has built and Aim to live your life according to that shape. So in verse 27, we get kind of positive instruction. We move into verses 30 through 34, we kind of receive some negative instruction. Or we, we receive positive instruction from a negative perspective. Listen to what it says again. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw it. And considered it, I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the wise man is walking down the, the path one day, and he comes upon what he remembers as a vineyard, a vineyard that he recognizes. And he sees the walls that are built up, obviously built many, many years ago, and they're cracking, and they're crumbling. Over the ground is covered in weeds. Thorns have taken over the grapevines. And it springs into his thought something. See, this is what Proverbs wants you to do. This is the goal of the book of Proverbs. See, what springs into his thought is a proverb. What verses, uh, verses 33, and, uh, 32, 33 and 34, those are almost direct quotes from Proverbs chapter 6. Almost direct quotes. So here's what Proverbs wants you to do. Proverbs wants you to live your life, to memorize the proverb, to memorize the truth, to memorize kind of the system of the world, and then go and look for it everywhere you see so that you can see the world testifying back to the truthfulness of it. And this is what happens here. He's got Proverbs 6 in his mind. He's, he's memorized this proverb that we see in verses 33 and 34. And he's walking along and he, he comes upon these, these destroyed walls, this overgrown vineyard. And it springs into his mind what he already knows. And he says, yes, obviously this is the truth. Yes, obviously this is the case here. You see, this is what wise men do. 
This is what wise women do. Wise women are able to receive positive instruction from negative circumstances. They're able to see the negative circumstances of other people's lives and say, you know what? That ended badly for them. I'm going to take a different path. I'm going to go a different way. They're, they, they're able to process and to realize that they aren't the exception to the rule. They're able to realize that, yeah, he, he went and that young couple went headlong into debt and it buried them and it crushed them. So, by God's grace, I realize if I do the same thing, the same thing is going to happen to me. And so, by God's grace, I'm going to resolve to live without debt. It's looking at somebody whose marriage is collapsing after years of neglect and saying, you know what, obviously that doesn't work. So, by God's grace, I'm going to resolve to not neglect my young marriage. It's being able to look into the negative circumstances of other people's life and receive positive instruction. I think of it kind of like if you've ever had, if you, if you have an older sibling. Now, in my, in my household, I was the oldest of the three children. And so I was the one that the parents were learning how to be parents on, right? I, I, I was the one that were like, oh, oh, that didn't kill him. Let's just keep on going with that, right? Gracie is that kind of kid in our, you know, like, it's amazing what those little things can endure, you know? Like, she takes some falls, she's rolled off some beds, and you're like, I mean, I feel like a bad parent, but it looks like we're going to survive this one. You know, like, we're not going to go to jail today. This is going to be okay. And uh, so, but, but the, I th I've always thought, and of course I would since I was the oldest, I've always thought that there is an advantage to being the younger. The advantage is, is that you can look up and you can see older brother, older sister, and you can kind of see what they get the beat down for. And they, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to avoid that. And so you can avoid a lot of discipline. You can avoid a lot of trouble in your life by learning from your older siblings, right? By seeing the mistakes that they've made, kind of seeing the punishment that came their way and thinking, yeah, that don't really look like a party. I'm out, you know? That's what's in view here. That's what's in view here. The book of Proverbs wants you to avoid the school of hard knocks. Did you know that? The book of Proverbs wants you to avoid the school of hard knocks. Now, we're all sinners. We're all going to do some remedial work at this school. We're all going to have to take and do a summer, a summer class at the school of hard knocks. But the goal of the book of Proverbs is to keep you from having to get a degree there. To keep you from having to, to, to become a master's or a Ph.D. at that school. And if you're the kind of person that says, well, I just have to learn everything the hard way. You're the kind of person that the book of Proverbs calls a fool. You're the kind of person that's going to pay a price that you don't want to pay. You're the kind of person that's going to live a life filled with drama. You're the kind of person that's going to live a life filled with anguish that you've brought on to yourself. Life is hard enough to, to bring in the school of hard knocks into the middle of it. It's difficult enough. Let me talk to our young brothers and sisters this morning. Our children, our teenagers, our college students, our young, our young married couples. I want you to hear me say that I reject that you have to go out and sow your wild oats. I reject that. I reject that you have to go and indulge all the curiosities that you have about the sinfulness and the wickedness of the world. I reject that. You do not have to take classes at this school. Because let me tell you something. If you feel like you need to indulge in all of the sins of society, all the sins that are available to you in the classroom, all the sins that are available to you in the parties and in college and all that, if you, have to, if you feel like you have to, let me tell you what you're going to find out. When you try sin, 
you're going to like it. Because sin tastes sweet to sinners. But young brother, young sister, sin is a sweet tasting poison. And it is toxic. And it will ruin your life quicker than you can imagine. It's going to sneak up on you. And one day, you're going to be in a place that you wish you never were, you never intended to be, but you're there. And you're right in the middle of the school of hard knocks. I'm telling you, young brother, young sister, you can avoid that by God's grace. So we see the wise man looking into a negative situation and being able to to obtain wise instruction receive positive instruction from a negative circumstance and it brings into his view he apparently knows this man and it immediately springs into his mind who this man is this man is a particular kind of fool This man is a particular kind of fool. This is a man that is known as a sluggard. This is a man that is slothful. This is a man that is lazy. Ray Ortland describes a sluggard as being being like syrup trying to drain out of a bottle. That if you turn the bottle upside down, the syrup's just not in any hurry to get out. That's why we squeeze it now, right? Like, God bless plastic squeeze containers. If you own a restaurant and you have ketchup in a glass bottle, you should be imprisoned. That, that, is just, that, is, that, that is just for your edification this morning. But the reason is, is that syrup, I just need to say that. I've been wanting to say that for years. Years. Imprisoned. Syrup just kind of oozes out, right? You ever known those people that have no motivation in life? No giddy up in life? Like this is the opposite of selfish ambition. This is no ambition. That's a fool, according to the Bible. That's a sluggard, according to the Bible. And it gives us kind of, I think there are kind of two observations that we can make about the sluggard from our text. The first being, the sluggard puts off until tomorrow what should be done today. The sluggard puts off until tomorrow what should be done today. the, the, The field is overgrowing. The walls are crumbling down. And what we are to understand, because there are walls, because all of this is there, is we are to understand that this young man inherited this. This is his inheritance. This vineyard has been caring and providing for his family for generations. And generations and generations and generations of faithfulness have been undone by one generation of sorriness. One generation of laziness. And so... It says that this young man, he walks by and everything is overgrown. And what does he say? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. What is it saying there? I just need a little bit more sleep. Just a few more minutes, Mom. Gracie Kate has this thing. Some days if she's really tired, you'll go in and she'll wake up. You'll, you'll try to wake up. She says, Dad, my eyes can't wake up. My eyes can't. Can I just sleep five more hours? And uh, she's always five hours. I don't, she has, she's not really good on the concept of time. But that's kind of the picture here, right? That every day this man wakes up and he just wants to sleep a little bit late. The Proverbs does not respect a man that sleeps late. It, it's, it's, you know, I'm out, I finally got out here in the field, but it's a little hot. And so it's lying down and taking a nap. I'll just wait till it cools off a bit. And the first day it's really not that big a deal, but it's the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. You see, the proverb here is not 
undermining rest and undermining the importance of rest. It is not saying that rest is bad. Proverbs does not assume that when you, when, you, uh, when you discredit one extreme that you must run to the other extreme. It is not saying that you must do away with all rest and go to being a workaholic. That is not what it's saying. No, what Proverbs is rebuking is not rest. It's laziness camouflaged with rest. It's, it's, those, it's those people that say, I'm just a little too burned out. I'm just a little bit too tired. I can't really do anything, right? You know the kind of people I'm talking about. If we're just being honest, what it's condemning is wimpiness. Wimpiness. Being a wimp. You have a family that work from can to can every day, laboring in the sun, and at the end of the day, they hand it over to the next generation, and he can't even get up out of bed. He's a wimp. He's tired, and he hasn't done anything. Nothing. You know, there are a lot of things that I love about my generation. A lot of things. We're convictional. Millennials are deep thinkers. We're the most educated uh, generation in American history because of the work of our parents and the work of those that have went before us. But one of the things that, I, that troubles me about my generation is that we seem to have a bit of a wimpy streak. We seem to have a bit of a lazy streak. Not a lot of grind in us. We get too burned out too easily, and we begin to camouflage our laziness with with rest. I just need a little rest. I just need a little sleep. You don't need sleep till 9 o'clock. You don't need five hours of television rest. Men of God, young men of God particularly, are we going to allow the foundations and the walls of our society and our churches to crumble while we lay in bed and say just a few more minutes? Are we going to allow our families to collapse while we lie in bed and say, I'm just a little too burned out? Are we going to allow our churches to remain laborless because we just need a little more leisure? Are we going to continue putting off working and growing and training ourselves in godliness because we don't have enough grind to get up out of the bed and open the Bible? One generation and the vineyard was ruined. You see, for the sluggard, there's always tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll read my Bible tomorrow. I'll buy life insurance tomorrow. I'll do the work, clean up the house tomorrow. I'll clean up the thorns tomorrow. I'll cut the grass tomorrow. I'll get a job tomorrow. I'll work on my marriage tomorrow. I'll play with my kids tomorrow. 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 Today, dad just needs to rest. Today, dad just needs to hang out. Today, dad just needs to sleep in a little bit. Meanwhile, the walls are crumbling down. asking you to be honest with yourself to look in the mirror and be true with what you see are you a sluggard or are you a wise diligent hard-working man or woman of God the second observation that we make about the sluggard is that they do not respect the cumulative nature of life that life accumulates how do weeds grow one at a time How do cracks come into 
the, the walls one at a time. A nap the first day is not a big deal. It's a nap the, the 20th day and the 21st day and the 22nd day that spoils the vineyard. And so they, they fail to understand that life is about what you allow to accumulate. It's about the, the debt that you accumulate. It's about the, the sin that you accumulate. It's about the sorriness that you accumulate. And once you get to a certain point, the work is so overwhelming that you're so far behind, you can never catch up again. You get to a certain point in your marriage where it's almost impossible to fix it. You get to a certain point with your, ch- your children where it's almost impossible to disciple them anymore. Impossible to have influence over their lives anymore. You get to a certain point in which you are so comfortable in your indifference and so comfortable in your laziness that that's just who you've become and now that's your identity. It's accumulated in you. Your life will ultimately amount to what you allow to accumulate. Because you see, positive accumulates just like negative. How do, you, how do you grow your income? You accumulate it. How, how do you end up in a place where you're not always on the verge of financial bankruptcy? You accumulate it a little at a time. You say no to small purchases a little at a time. How do you have a healthy and thriving marriage? You work on it a little at a time. You take steps with one another day after day. How do you raise up godly children? A little at a time. From when they're young, you pour the gospel into them over and over and over again. Sowing it into their hearts. Disciplining them properly. Bringing them to the house of God. Talking about the the Lord as you drive down the road. A little at a time. How do you build an honorable life? How do you build a respectable life? How do you build and grow in godliness? A little at a time. You will not know and understand your Bible when you first begin to read it. But by God's grace, ten years later, it ought to be a little clearer. Are you willing to put in the time? Are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to diligently pursue after God and pursue after Christ? Are you diligently willing to sow into your marriage and pour into your children? Are you willing to be the wise man who builds up his life in an honorable way? Do you recognize the cumulative effect of life? And if you do, brother or sister, I ask you, what is it that's piling up in your house? What is it that's piling up in your family? See, at some point, you've got to stop thinking like an American and start thinking like a Christian. Life is not a sum of your leisures. Life is a sum of of your labors. Labor in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive us for all the kingdom work that our church perhaps has not done because of our slothfulness, because we are lazy sometimes. 